waiting tables, the job of serving other people food and drinks, an ordinary job that can shift a national conversation about race. We can see that this story is a contemporary story, even though it happened 50 years ago. Booker Wright was a simple man. He, he worked serving people. And yet, just by speaking his truth, we are now talking about him. We're still talking about him. We're writing opera oratorios about him. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. Today we have a story of restaurants and civil rights put to poetry and music based on the narrative of one man, a man from Greenwood, Mississippi, named Booker Wright. Booker Wright, to me, was every man. Well, I should rephrase that. Booker Wright was every black man in the South, to me. He, he was unique in spirit, but he was not unique in circumstance. He was a waiter. Uh, you know, a black waiter at this all-white restaurant, Lusco's, in Greenwood. And he was well known for his ability to sort of recite the entire menu by, by heart. He also was a barkeep. He owned a bar in Greenwood, Mississippi. He was just one of the guys out there working, making a living, doing what he could for his family and really the type of work, the only type of work that was available to most black men at the time was food service. Booker Wright really falls in that category of just being this unsung hero who had an opportunity to stand up for what is right. In, in a sense, he was a, a noble figure that inspired then and inspires now. These folks know about Booker Wright's story because they collaborated in producing a piece of music about him an oratorio called Repast, which will make up the backbone of this episode. It was commissioned by the Southern Foodways Alliance and a nonprofit foundation called Premier Commission. Please be aware, if you're listening to this episode with children, the lyrics do contain a racial slur. In this piece, you'll hear the voices of this oratorio's creators, who represent a variety of racial, cultural, and professional backgrounds. Yeah, I'm Kevin Young. I'm a professor and a poet who wrote the libretto for the piece. I'm Nolan Gasser, and I'm a composer uh, and a musicologist and a pianist, and I've been an active composer for most of my life. Nolan composed the music. My name is Bruce Levingston. I'm a concert pianist, and I'm the artistic director of Premier Commission, Inc., a nonprofit foundation that supports and commissions new works of music. Which worked with the SFA to commission the piece. Bruce is also the pianist in the performance. My name is Justin Hopkins, and um, I'm a bass baritone opera singer. And Justin sang the role of Booker Wright. Welcome, have a seat, I insist, I'm your host, your money is no good here, no good here. No good, no good, no good. Your money is no good here. Your money is no good here. But before we turn to the music, there's one other person you'll hear from in this episode. And we'll begin with her story. 
My name is Yvette Johnson, and Booker Wright was my grandfather. Yvette didn't know much about her grandfather for most of her life. I knew two things. I knew that he was murdered before I was born, and I knew that he owned a cafe. That's what my parents always called it, because I grew up in San Diego, California, and of course, Booker lived in Greenwood, Mississippi, so I was not around relatives who who spoke of him often, but I knew those two things. And so by my parents referring to his restaurant as a cafe, I thought it was like a coffee shop. You know, this was even before we had lots of Starbucks. So I figured just a place where people came in and got a cup of coffee. I had no idea. It was a full-service restaurant that served breakfast, lunch, and dinner and turned into a juke joint late at night. She also didn't know that Booker had worked as a waiter at a whites-only restaurant in Jim Crow-era Greenwood. I went to school with primarily um, white kids. So I was the only person of color in all of my classes for most of my elementary school years. I mean, I was born in 1974. We lived in California. So I was growing up sort of in the shadow of the civil rights movement. We were, you know, sort of the rhetoric in the nation, I think, was that this is something that's been resolved and it's not an issue anymore. But as an adult, when Yvette had children of her own, she began thinking about race more critically. And I knew hardly anything. I mean, I remember in elementary school when my teacher taught us about Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad, it sounded kind of fun, like a road trip. It didn't really, you know, encapsulate uh, just uh, the horrors that uh, they were trying to escape and the lengths they would go to to escape them. So I began looking back and I decided that I wanted to research the life of African-Americans in our country. And I also wanted to understand my family. So she started digging around. Very, very quickly, I stumbled upon the story of my grandfather. There wasn't much about Booker Wright online, but Yvette found this one piece. And I called the organization that published that information, and it was the Southern Foodways Alliance. And I got on the phone with this man who sounded very excited to talk to me as if I was some sort of a celebrity. That was the director of the SFA, John T. Edge. He was really excited and he was really warm. And he told me the story about my grandfather saying something on television that was really powerful and provocative, although John T. himself had never seen it. You know, he'd been doing research, I guess, in the early to mid-90s, and people were still talking about this thing that had happened in 66, you know, decades after my grandfather had passed away. That was Yvette's first understanding, that her grandfather had done something in the struggle for civil rights that was memorable. Which it was kind of funny because I called my mom and my aunt to tell them um, about this amazing thing and to, and to find out if they knew. And until I actually had the footage myself, which took about four years to get, they were very sweet, but they both thought that I had the wrong Booker right. So they were like, okay, Yvette, okay, whatever. <laughs> Coming up the television documentary Booker Wright was in, and the opera oratorio his words inspired. That's ahead. If you head over to southernfoodways.org, you can meet Hickory Grove, Arkansas native Shay Himbree. He's the SFA's 2016 Symposium Artist-in-Residence. You can see a preview of his show, The Secret Ingredient. It'll hang at the Powerhouse in Oxford, Mississippi, and be open to the public October 4th through 31st, 2016. The SFA's visual arts programming is made possible by a generous investment from 21C Museum Hotels, based in Louisville, Kentucky. With underwriting from 21C Museum Hotels, the SFA commissions artists who share our cultural and intellectual engagement in the region. History here is complicated. 
acknowledging and leveraging that past through art drives thought-provoking dialogues today about race, class, gender, health, environment, and more. While you're at southernfoodways.org, you can also become an SFA member. Your membership dollars support all the SFA's work, including our films, oral history projects, and this podcast. Lusco's restaurant in Greenwood, Mississippi, opened in 1933, and it's still open today. But back in the mid-1960s, even after the Civil Rights Act was passed, Lusco's served only white customers. Diners could sit in private curtained booths that, during Prohibition, allowed customers to drink covertly. It was the kind of place that waiters dressed in white jackets and recited the menu from memory. This is where Booker Wright worked when he was recorded for an NBC television documentary that aired in 1966. It was called Mississippi, a Self-Portrait. This is Booker Wright. The white man we've just seen and heard think he's a hard-working, carefree Negro. But what does he think? The piece begins with him presenting the menu the way that he did every night that he worked at Lesko's restaurant. That's Yvette Johnson, Booker Wright's granddaughter again. And the way that he presented the menu was in song. So he sang the menu with sort of a catchy rhyme and an incredible smile and just sort of a jolly, um, joyous, jubilant spirit to him. Glad to see y'all. We don't have a written menu. I'll be glad to tell you what we're going to serve tonight. Everything we serve is a la carte. We have fresh shrimp cocktail, lustre shrimp, fresh orchard on a half shell, baked orchard, oyster Rockefeller, oyster almadine, sweet oyster, fried oysters. Oysters, fried oysters, Spanish mackerel broil, whetstone, sirloin steak, club steak, T-bone steak, porterhouse steak, ribeye steak, Lusco special steak, mushrooms, flavor of garlic, Italian spaghetti, and meatballs, soft-shell crab. This, too, is where poet Kevin Young decided the oratorio about Booker Wright would begin. French fried onions, golden brown donut style. Best food in the world, the world, the world, the world is served at Lusco's. He nods and rocks. Tell my people what you got. I think hearing the menu was so important. You know, there was no way to get around this chant almost the song that he sings and a lyric poem is you know a song on the page or in the voice um, the, its music comes from the words themselves and that's a lot like what he was doing I think of the lyric as a kind of technology that does that that you know suddenly you're in someone else's skin hopefully for the duration of the poem and a few beats after we have fresh shrimp, cocktails, lusco shrimp, fresh oysters on a half shell, baked oysters, oysters Rockefeller, oysters almond. Musically, it's kind of almost like a, you know, like like a chicken stomp. Spanish mackerel, world whetstone, sorghum steak, club steak. I mean, it's a very two-beat kind of boom, ba, da, da, da. But you know, keeping the the undercurrent of kind of pain in there, even though it's fun, there's dissonance in there. A lot of seconds, minor seconds at times. But then at the very end, it kind of opens up where he says, best food in the world. Best food in the world, the world, the world. And I really wanted that to soar. This almost this mix. I imagine the Booker was proud of how good the food at Lesko was, but it was also the source of 
agony or pain that he was serving it to a crowd that in many instances didn't really respect him. Tell my people what you got, what you got. Tell my people what you got. In the NBC footage, after Booker finishes reciting the menu, there's a sudden shift in tone. His, his persona completely changes, and it's sort of as if he's taken off a mask. Now, that's what my customers, I say my customers, be expecting of me. And he talks about what it's like interacting with his white customers at Lesko's, but he, the sense I get as I'm watching it, or that I had as I was watching it, was that he was, he was just telling people what it was like. He wasn't even trying to implicate anyone, although I think he knew that he was. But he doesn't seem angry or vengeful or bitter. He just seems sad. The hardest thing is knowing when you're free. Easy to see when you're not. He let it be known that his demeanor and the demeanor of people in service at that time and, and black men in particular was theatrical, was fake in a way. He was acting. His experience of having to wear a mask, you know, having to present one side of himself for his white customers to be able to be enjoyed by them and then who he had to present in the black community because I think many times in the black community people saw him as the, the black guy who was in with the whites. For your children, how much to tell them? Always learn to smile. The meaner the man be, the more you smile, although you're crying on the inside. The meaner the man be, the more you smile. The meaner the man be, the more you smile. Today, things are much better than they were during his time, but in, in many ways, things are very much the same. One thing that's very striking that he says is that you've got to, but remember, you've got to keep that smile. And that smile masks so much pain, it masks fear, but it's also protective armor. When, when a police officer stops you or, or when you're in a department store or anywhere else, a smile for a black man can go a long way because it disarms a, a possible situation. When do you talk about it? The man never won Who come for you burning and cutting and crossing Even a pistol can be made a whip Just for you saying what's true This whole movement is really like a lament 
it's very bluesy. And I mean, I remember actually having kind of this sort of visceral, emotional, you know, almost drained feeling as I was writing it because uh, Kevin, you know, forced me <laughs> by his poetry to set the N-word. That's a good nigger. That's my nigger. And so I thought long and hard about how I would say it. I mean, and so I thought how he would say that, how he would feel that. The head waiter's lament. The hardest thing is knowing when you're free. Easy to see when you're not. Well, and I think, like, what does freedom mean in such a setting? Is it, you know, having a moment to yourself, a drink, uh, a dance, you know? But I think when you're not free, you feel unfree, you know, and that there's a spectrum, but not really. You know, there's an absolute. And trying to navigate that, I think, is part of life in the Jim Crow South. Well, and if it's the very air that you're breathing, it's sort of like how to differentiate anything else, you know, how to know anything else. Yeah, it's when, like, the water and the the sky are the same temperature, the air and the water, you know, it's, like, hard to know when are you drowning. Some call me Booker Some call me John Some call me Jim Some call me This is my place, I say, meaning where I work, but more the green bar I tend and keep, but more the green bar I tend and keep. The mouths I feed Not only my children Who I want better for When my grandfather spoke, he every single thing he talked about was something that transcended race. He talked about what it feels like to be humiliated. And almost everyone, regardless of why or when they've been humiliated, they know what that feels like. And he talked about love for his, his children. And so I think that what he, what he did was he presented aspects of himself that anyone could relate to, anyone sane could relate to. And he just sort of, you know, claimed his spot in the human race. You know, you you want to devalue us, you want to see, you want to believe that somehow we're less than you, but look, we're the same on the inside. Gathers in the Mississippi First green 
Despite the mask he had to wear while waiting tables at Lesko's, not every part of Booker Wright's life held that weight. And the creators of Repast wanted to make sure that his own bar, Booker's Place, got its moment. I think it was a celebratory space, and you know, people had a good time, probably got a little loud and uh, but uh, loose <laughs> loose let's say um you know i think they had music and beer and this is the delta this is the blue where the blues were born and this is where the blues continued you know in many different forms both the emotional blues you might say and then also the music so to return to the heart of the music is also to return to the heart of that speaking out that bravery, that sublimation of pain into pleasure, all those things I think you probably could have found at Booker's Place. It's the haze that hurts, sometimes far worse than when the sun spits its rays all over your face. Them days you brown and redden the work can be like to kill you so a man need a place to go inside his head and walk around and rest and walk around and rest there's a juke joint of the soul somewhere you can have yourself something cold You know, I was thinking a lot in the poem Booker's Place, both about the actual place, but I also was thinking about, you know, this inner place and and what does a juke joint or a bar or, you know, a blues place mean for those who go there. And I think it means this inner space as well as an actual one. Ultimately, Repast builds toward a movement in which the Booker character sings most of the speech he gave to NBC. Booker, tell my people what you look at. Some people are nice, some are not. Some call me Booker, some call me John, some call me Jim, some call me nigger. All of that hurts, but you have to smile. If you don't, what's wrong with you? Why are you not smiling? Get over there and get me so-and-so and so-and-so. Poet Kevin Young knew he wanted to include Booker's exact words. Well, I knew I had to have it in there somewhere, both because I think it's revolutionary and because it's sort of not, you know, because what he says is just the truth and, and in a way recounting it. But I also think he's in the voice of them. You know, he dares to speak as them in a way that must have really, from all results, 
upset them very much. Maybe they felt he was mocking them. But I also think it was, how dare he speak as me, which, of course, he was spoken for often. Sometimes you tip you. Sometimes you say, I'm not going to tip that nigga. You don't look for no tip. Yes, sir. Thank you. What did you say? Come back. Did I take care of you? Don't talk to him like that. That's a good nigga. That's my nigga. Oh, yes, sir, boy. I'm your nigga. I'm trying to make a living. Why? I got three children. I want them to get an education. I want the boys to never get an education. But I want them to get it. And they are doing good. Night after night, I lay down and I dream about what I had to go through with. I don't want my children to go through with that. I want them to be able to get the job that they feel qualified. That's what I'm struggling for. Customers, I say my customers be expecting of me. Booker, tell my people, tell my people what you got. Some people nice, some people not. When Booker is going uh, from playing, you know, one role to another for his, quote, audience. The customers that he took care of uh, at the restaurant, I think it's representative of how people have to survive. That's pianist Bruce Levingston. And what you hear in the words and the music, you hear survival and uh, a kind of spirit of and will to live. In a certain way, the way that he speaks for his customers as well as for himself also is this gesture towards how much he had to be anticipating their experience, like that that was actually part of the, the challenge of being a black person in the South is that you had to always be living in their heads in order to keep yourself safe, right? right. And they don't have to think about that, you know, and, and you can, a word can get you killed. And, you know, you sort of see that. He says, yes, sir, thank you. And they say, what'd you say? You know, like, I mean, wow, you know, after he doesn't tip you, you have to thank him for that. 
I mean, that's an amazing and a terrifying moment. The way in which you have to constantly be reducing yourself. But not dead, but not dead, but not dead, but not dead. So after the piece aired, he was actually working at Lesko's that night, and people began calling in saying, we don't ever want him to wait on us again. And some of the customers who were there that night, who he was waiting on, said, we don't want you to wait on us. And so he said, I think it's time for me to go. And he left and never went back. And as far as you know, we know, the restaurant, the owners never tried to bring him back. I think it's pretty clear that he couldn't have stayed there because he was talking about people who I think felt betrayed, though I'm not sure why the truth betrayed them. And really, he was just describing everyday life in the Jim Crow South. But he was also saying something else. He says at the end, you know, he just wants better for his kids, you know, and I think that's such a human wish. And I think that's as troubling to sort of the system of power as as saying, you treat me bad. And he lived another seven years. And then one night he was working at Booker's place and a kid from the neighborhood came in. I'm saying kid, but he was, you know, in his early 20s, a young man whose name was Blackie. That's what they called him. That was his nickname. He came into Booker's place and Booker was his own bouncer. <laughs> you know, there was a lot of tension at the time between police and people of color. And so it really wasn't an option for him to call the police if he had trouble. So uh, Blackie came in that night and began acting up. And then Booker made him leave, which was what Booker would normally do. And Blackie came back and shot him and uh, killed him. Booker died a few days later in the hospital. Those who are able, please friends. I think that the, the, final, the final movement, Sundaying, has to be one of my favorite because it's, it's so optimistic. It really is kind of, it, it is a true benediction. It is removing the pain. It is removing the anger and the confusion of this life and the sorrow of what he's having to go through and what he hopes his children don't. You know, few groups of people have been as terrorized, treated as unkindly, as humiliated, held back financially as people of color. You know, but like Maya Angelou says, you know, yet still we rise. And I wanted that rising to be, you know, sort of church-like, of course, but also this other kind of rising. The birds wake you early. Sun against the skin. Somewhere, smell of a grill. Smell of a grill, smell of a grill, cut grass and gasoline. And I thought it would be very cool to have the audience, you don't normally have a classical audience, you know, clapping away. In fact, they're not only clapping, but they're standing, because the baritone soloist asks everybody to stand. For example, at Carnegie, it was an absolute hoot. Here's this, you know, very sort of you know, potentially staid hall, and, you know, it was completely sold out, and everybody's kind of clapping and swaying back and forth. Bruce Levingston and Justin Hopkins performed Repast at Carnegie Hall in the spring of 2016. And even there, the audience clapped like they were in church. It was church, you know, in a way. Looking out at the crowd, 
and I spend my life on stage looking out at audiences. And the audience members were smiling, they're crying, they're frowning at what they're hearing and what they're experiencing. So it was very much, it was communal. You know you've done something when everybody at Carnegie Hall is standing up and clapping with the music and cheering with what's happening. Why not wait till tomorrow to pay the phone, the gas electric? Why not pray, pray for a tie, pray for a tie, pray for a tie instead of a win? It took me almost a while before to, to figure out Sundaying, what, what does that mean? And of course what he means by that is that in our imagination, if we can imagine what life is like if we didn't have these problems, if there wasn't racism and prejudice, if we didn't have to have a win, if we could pray for a tie, you know, one of the closing lines to go on and on. A million Repast was performed by Justin Hopkins and Bruce Levingston. It was written by Kevin Young and composed by Nolan Gasser. You can learn more about all of them by going to our website, southernfoodways.org gravy. Yvette Johnson has a book coming out about her journey of discovery around her grandfather, Booker Wright. It's called The Song and the Silence. Music for this episode was entirely from the performance of Repast, thanks to Premier Commission for our use of the recording. Gravy's theme music is by Wendell Patrick, and our donor music is by Jazar. Thanks to the SFA staff for their help in assembling this piece, to Sarah Camp Milam, Gravy's managing editor, and to Gravy's intern, Tyler Pratt. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... One sure way to build community is around the table. That's something that Crescent Communities knows. They cultivate community and steward the land while building residential, multifamily, and commercial developments across the region. This November marks the 10th Music to Your Mouth, a food and music festival hosted at Palmetto Bluff. That's a Crescent community in Bluffton, South Carolina. Southern chef stalwarts like Ann Quatrano, Ashley Christensen, John Currents, and Bill Smith return to Music to Your Mouth each year to share recipes and, of course, to tell a story or two. A full schedule of events, populated with many familiar SFA faces, can be found online at musictoyourmouth.com. So, the next episode of Gravy, I'll be taking a short break to wrap up a creative project I've been working on. More about that soon. But while I'm gone, Sarah Reynolds is stepping in. You'll be hearing from her every so often while I'm on break. And next, she'll be taking on pineapple casserole. So then you take about two cups of shredded cheddar cheese. So we've got pineapple tidbits, flour, sugar, shredded cheddar cheese, and then we're going to put Ritz crackers on top. That is pineapple casserole with a side of class, race, and sexuality. That's next time. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread not war. 
And if you like that phrase enough to wear it, you can visit our friends at billyreed.com for hats and shirts that say it proudly.